Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 138, recorded on March 5th of 2021. The third time I have said the words episode 138 at the beginning of one of these episodes. One completely garbage thanks to recording issues. One, just a few seconds before this, because somebody forgot to hit the record button on the other end. Because technology is wonderful when it works, but when it doesn't, well, that's why we're here now on this very special live episode of Photo Geek Weekly. And the man running the board, who's hopefully pressing all the right buttons next to me right now, is my good buddy, Mr. Steve Brazel. Steve, how are you? I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I, I, uh, ah, yeah. How are you, my friend? You know, as we were just saying, the, uh, that, that nobody else is going to hear except for the people that were watching this live, uh, that the pandemic has really put, uh, you know, thrown a stick in the spokes as the, uh, uh, as the old proverb might go of productivity. And, uh, I'm so thrilled that my macro book is now at the press. We're doing the press checks and final decisions on things like that right now. And I, I couldn't be happier because now that that is lifted off my shoulders, I do kind of feel a little bit more creative uh, moving forward and a little bit more energized to do more of these podcasts after a brief hiatus when I basically had to put blinders on uh, in order to, to finish one big project and, and get a little bit more freedom to even really just pick up the camera. Yeah, no, I'm the same way. And and what I was saying in the in the third recording or whatever it was that we were doing this is the pandemic to me has been the weirdest like black hole of time where I had all these grandiose ideas of redoing a website or redoing a portfolio or creating this or doing that. And every day just ends with me going, I didn't get to that. Where'd the day go? And it's been, you know. 12 months of that. It's It's been weird. It has been. And, uh, you know, I, I think that the, the new normal that uh, we've all kind of settled into during the pandemic and what ha- we've we found our way about it now, but we still have the problem um, of seeing where one day ends and the next one begins, you know, even one week to the next. Uh, my wife has a bit more structure in her life because she works three days <coughs> out of the house uh, on a week and I'm in dad mode those days the entire time. Um, and I don't, I, I don't regret that one bit, but uh playing with Paw Patrol toys and making couch forts is not exactly professionally productive work. (laughs) No, but it's, but it's the important. It is. It very much is. I mean, really, when we really talk about life, right, all the fun stuff we're going to talk about today, really the important stuff is that that child's got their dad right there. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, I, I wouldn't trade that opportunity for the world. But uh, I do like to geek out about photo stuff like we're about to do on this podcast, the Photo Geekery yep. Show, where uh, we've got some great stories lined up. Uh, everything from space and artificial intelligence and ethics that might go with that. And well, I'll, I'll save it. We're just going to get through these stories as we continue on. And the first one is near and dear to my heart because not only do I love space and I love robots, and I love space robots that go to Mars through rocket-propelled sky cranes on another planet, which is just fantastic. Um, I also like stereoscopic 3D photography, and this checks every single one of those boxes, Steve. A closer look at the Mars Perseverance rover's incredible cameras. Um, So... This, the system, that they say it's got 23 cameras, and yes, some of them are hazard avoidance cameras, some of them were on the uh, the capsule and the sky crane and all that. 
And some of them aren't cameras in the traditional sense. They're more uh, metrology. They're, they're measuring things rather than capturing, uh, you know, image data, as we might imagine. Um, but there's a lot of cameras going on this rover, and it's the state of the art for what it could possibly be. Uh, so, right, Steve, have you? I'm sure you've looked at the rundown and, and seen exactly what these cameras do and, uh, and, and why they're included. It is a wonderful array of sensors and technology for... Scientific analysis, sure, but some of it just makes pretty pictures that we can all sit back and say, wow, you know, the accomplishments. It of does, humankind. but you know what struck me in this article? And that was the, I mean, okay, it's JPL and it's NASA. I mean, obviously there's going to be some forethought there, but it was really interesting to me to see for a Mars rover, what they chose to include and each one having its specific role for lack of a better phrase. Yep. So there's 23 cameras on this thing. Nine are specific to engineering. Seven are specific to science. And there's seven cameras that cover the span of arrival departure type stuff. Entry, descent, landing, that type of a thing. Really, to me, that was a big part of this article, was just the way that they chose to divide up. Cameras aren't being multiple use. Cameras have a specific purpose based on technology, zoomability, resolution, color capability, and the one on the mast, the Mast Cam Z, is pretty crazy. It is, but I also want to give kudos to all the cameras that they put on the entry stage <coughs> devices that had such a short-lived life that they, they really served no purpose if everything went perfectly. Because the delay in data transmission back to NASA would mean that if something went horribly wrong, they'd see some evidence of what went wrong. But if everything went right, that data would only be back at Earth after the rover was successfully on the ground. Uh, you know, speed of light stuff, right. right? So the fact that they put yeah. all those cameras there for just the, just in case things didn't work or didn't work perfectly, that that would be a learning tool and that's all they were for. Um, but to be honest, every camera on this particular piece of technology is a learning tool. Yeah, it, so first of all, the main camera to me, what it can do was, I don't want to say the word surprising. Again, we're talking JPL. There was some interesting stuff in this article. So a normal zoom lens, right? You have to be able to zoom that lens in and out. Uh, elements move on rails. You have to have grease. You have to have lubricant of some sort so that they don't break down right away. But all of those things cause a lens to break down over time. Grease deteriorates. It has less ability. So what they did here is you can't service that on Mars. So they designed these lenses in a way that things move on rails with no friction, perfectly machined, and without need for lubricant. So they got a zoom lens that if something is right near the rover, like we're talking that mass cam Z, if something's right near the rover, they're saying it can focus on it if it's the tip of a pencil. And up to a football field away, yep. yeah, in 3D, because there's actually two cameras, it can focus on the, something the size of an almond. 
And it has uh, calibration charts. Uh, there's something that looks kind of like on a, yeah on the deck on the deck of it, the it looks like a little sundial, and so it can calibrate itself, uh, which is a, a nice <clears throat> novel thing to have, especially uh, on Mars, where you know your white balance. You know, I I was gonna say a joke. It's like my my camera doesn't have a white balance setting for Mars. Well, theirs probably would, but things are so varied. Uh, you know, especially when you want to get that scientific accuracy. The thing about this right. is, and some people have brought it up to me. It's like Don. It really, are, are, it's 2021. Why are these cameras only 1600 by 1200 resolution? Well, the idea behind these cameras is, number one, that's all you need. Number two, uh, that's all that is capable of surviving in the vacuum of space on the way there and then surviving in the very thin Martian atmosphere with cosmic radiation and such, uh, because it has to be hardened technology. But number three, your bandwidth of sending image data back is so low that if you had a higher resolution sensor, your bottleneck is not the resolution of the sensor. It's the stream of data back to Earth, right? Okay, so I had somebody, a guest for behind the shot the other day, send me a potential image that we're going to discuss. And they sent me the original TIFF, and it was 247 megabytes. And I've got gigabit internet, but that day it took me minutes to download. We're coming from Mars, right? <laughs> First of all, that resolution is, to me, shockingly good. The, the, so we had the, the rover before, right? Curiosity rover. And you need to really look at not just what the resolution is, but how are they improving these systems? So now that we've got this particular rover and now we're comparing to Curiosity, Curiosity didn't do color. These do color. These lenses have a wider field of view in them. And this is technically a higher resolution yeah. than what we had before. They shoot RGB, they shoot infrared, they shoot ultraviolet, they have the zoom, they have that no grease thing that I talked about. In reality, for what we're doing, these are absolutely amazing. There was one thing I didn't understand, and I watched all the videos, and by the way, the one video showing the whole zoom thing was really, really fascinating. But the one thing that I didn't get was they mentioned an eight-position filter wheel in the article. Do we know what that is? Uh, that's probably because the CCD sensor does not have any uh, any filters in front of it so that it can collect full spectrum <coughs> light. It can, uh, it can collect infrared light. It can collect ultraviolet light. So what that probably is, and, and I'm, I'm going to guess here, um, but one of those filters can make it visible light, what we can see with our own eyes. Um, okay. I'm assuming that there might be, if it's a filter wheel, uh, an option that has no filter in that same wheel so that it just collects everything. Um, then there might be one for infrared. There might be one for ultraviolet. There might be some bandpass filters where it's only going to collect between like 400 and 500 nanometers of light. Um, so that's like greenish yellow uh or somewhere in right. that area which mars might not have a lot of so maybe there's one that is like um uh red ish uh which is more i don't know exactly what these are but there's a lot of different filters that you can do to filter down light to very specific frequencies or let it all in yeah which makes sense yeah. the one thing that did surprise me also was what i said about and this is in the article It'll focus really close on something the size of the tip of a pencil, but up to a football field, this is the, the terminology they're using, up to a football field away, it can focus on something the size of an almond. But then when you look at the zoom, it's a 26 to 110. Yeah. At F7 to F10, that's the range that you've got. I don't know how they're focusing on 
Granted, there's two cameras and it's doing 3D. Is that? Oh, and that's really that's cool. got to be. I uh, I, I want to touch on that because I'm a huge aficionado of stereoscopic 3D imagery. But the fact that you've got that on Mars adds it adds more information than doubling the resolution. Because if you had double the resolution of a single frame, that's great. But if you instead of doubling the two-dimensional resolution. Uh, add uh, a Z dimension, uh, add depth information to that. That is so much more valuable than just plain old resolution when you can see three-dimensionality uh, to things in that depth, not just for, for science, but for navigation, for understanding how far away things might be. Um, that is a, a very important metric. Yeah, I completely agree. Completely agree. I, I just think this whole thing, I'm so glad we're back in space and doing things seriously and taking it seriously. And if you watched this landing live. Oh, and I did. The one guy who was the project lead was one of the most amazing, wonderful things to see his live reaction. And it's one of those things that if you didn't watch live, watching it after the fact doesn't have the same impact. It's not like a sports game where it's like, ah, don't tell me what happened. I'll see who wins, uh, wins later. There'd be no way avoiding the news of the successful or, or uh, failed landing of the rover seconds after the fact. You have to be present in that moment if you really cared about it. Yeah. And it just brought me to tears. I was just, you know, uh, with every bit of pressure that this pandemic has put on us to have these wonderful accomplishments of mankind uh, out there in that moment of just pure unbridled success uh, I I loved it, and the fact that you know photography is at the core of all this stuff. And you know what? Sometimes it's a it's a camera equipped with a laser to vaporize rocks, and the camera's only purpose is to detect what that rock was made of when it turns into vapor. Um, so technically, that's a camera, but it's not a camera by any standard means that we are familiar with. Still, though, uh, lasers and cameras, um, I love when they go together. Well, and when we were doing the critique show with Andy Anatko a second ago. Uh, you know, a few minutes ago, whatever it was. I mentioned that when Curiosity first went to Mars, I got a connection from somebody to possibly get somebody from JPL to come on with one of the shots from Curiosity. And unfortunately, that kind of happened at the time that I left the old network that I was on and I went solo and that kind of got lost. But what was interesting during the process of starting to set that up was... Some of the email exchange dealt with, you know, making sure that during the show we would give credit to the people that mattered. So this is not a photographer, right? right? That you interview one person and it's their photo. The team that's behind these cameras are, you know, first of all, it's a large team. Rights belong to a number of people. Credit belongs to a number of people. And so as we discuss this now... I just want to say to everybody at JPL, to everybody at NASA that managed to pull this off, there are people out there that seriously appreciate what you're doing, and it's inspiring, and it's amazing, and thank you. And all the subcontractors that made the little parts that go into all oh, of yeah. these different things, it's, it's just an incredible team, and not one person could do it. But could you imagine, Steve, designing a camera um, that you are going to make exactly one of, at least one well, I guess two, because they do have it like a second rover on Earth that they use to troubleshoot certain things. Um, uh, but really, one that ever goes into the field. And it's not like when we have our mass-produced cameras these days. They've got oodles of features and bells and whistles. Uh, and they're used as profit centers because once you put the R&D into it, then you can make money selling it. There's no selling rovers. So you have so much money 
going into one of these things being utilized for science. You have to do it right. And if you don't do it right, yeah. then it's a colossal failure that every other member of the team, from the rocket sky crane to the person that made the wheels to everything else, uh, through every piece of this, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And every link was pretty rock solid strong here. So, um, yeah, I, I'm just geeking out over the success. And, and you, know, you can read into all of this stuff. The article is going to be, it's from Petapixel in the show notes at uh, photogeekweekly.com. And just revel in it. Just give yourself a good moment. Yeah, it was. It's a, it's a great story. And seriously, go watch the videos. Because some of the videos where they're showing computer rendering of how everything works in animation... Is, are fascinating. It's, it's wonderful. Right. Um, well, let's move on to our next story. Uh, and this one, okay. this one is, it kind of uh, strikes a chord for me in both positive and negative ways. Uh, from DP Review, uh, Deep Nostalgia AI Tech Animates Old Photos and Brings Them to Life. Now, I'm surprised it's taken this long for this technology to exist because we have uh, AI that can generate faces from nothing. And we've got deep fake technology. We'll talk about one of those in a minute as well. Um, but if you can take an old photo, maybe from before you were born, maybe from one of your relatives, and you can make their eyes move around and blink and you can make them smile and their head tilt as we're seeing in this video, um, from somebody that is likely long dead or has nowhere near the same, uh, you know, look as they do, uh, is this, okay, th this seems like it is the beginning of an episode of Black Mirror. And it's not perfect. I'll give them that. It gets a little bit, but right now we're in that uncanny. The nose and the eyebrows is where you can see it. You can see the eyebrows change and the bridge of the nose changes. Right. Uh, and so we're kind of in that uncanny valley. Um, but what if you just lost a relative and you wanted to see their face animated again, right? I mean, how would that turn out for you? Uh, it would be a tearjerker movement, or of course, an antique sculptor with a, a sculpture with a missing nose and, uh, and other missing pieces. Um, I've even seen somebody animate a tattoo that they had of somebody's head uh, on their arm, and so I'm sure you could do the same thing by animating drawings. Or um, I wonder if it would handle uh, the painting, the scream. I wonder if it would actually be able to do anything with that. Um, I don't think it's trained for that much uh, uh, abstract interpretation of the human form. But would you, Steve, would you run any photos through this of your dearly departed family members, uh, your ancestors, etc.? Okay. Not a chance in hell. It, it's just, it's cool. Purely from a tech point of view, it's really cool. It's disturbing, though. Yeah. Right. I don't. It, the first thought I thought when I brought up this one here, which is the the guy that's looking around, right? When I first brought that up, I thought to myself, this is being trained basically by videos. Okay. They have videos of natural human movement, it, and they're using the the animations, facial animations, to then apply those constants to a still image. And while they're constant for most people, they're not constant for everybody. And some people, my dad always had a habit, I can't do it. My dad would always raise one eyebrow, right? I'm not going to see this here. So they're, thanks, you and my wife making me feel bad. So to me, there's too much chance that I would miss the, the micro movements 
that made someone them. And that would bother me because then my memory of them would effectively be the fake movement, not the real movement. Does that make sense? Um, I just find super cool. The Acropolis one, right? The statue from the Acropolis. Okay. That's really cool stuff. I mean, that Acropolis thing moving and it's, it's this one. I I think that one is is my favorite because it was never real to begin with. And so you don't have that same barrier. Exactly. But, and we should mention, the company that's doing this is a genealogy company called MyHeritage. They also did an ad with Abe Lincoln. If you go Google Abe Lincoln like you've never seen him before, you'll see it. And again, it's, it's obviously not real, but it's disturbingly close. This is all AI information that's licensed from somebody called DID, D-ID. And uh, I just, I don't know. So, Steve, it's, me, it's not going it, away, though. It, it crosses the line. It does. And if it's on the other side of the line, but it's not stopping, you know, I, I wonder where this is going to go uh, and, and how far they're going to be able to take this. You know, like if you could gather um, a whole bunch of photos of your family uh, and input some characteristics like how tall they were and, and so on, uh, then you could conceivably have an animated video of everybody sitting around a dinner table laughing and carrying on that never existed because they, they right. might not have even have been born in the same century. Um, and, you know, that that's not the first time that People have been, uh, you know, compositing images together well in the film era a century ago, putting celebrities of different uh, uh, generations and continents and so on in the same images together. But but now it's becoming, if this becomes so much more commonplace, then it becomes acceptable by society to do this. Um, I, I really feel like I want nothing to do with it and uh, and stop people. But... Now, but but take this for a thought. And I'm, I'm going back to that Acropolis one, right? The, the statue that was never a human, because that to me is where kind of the beauty of this whole thing is. Imagine the haunted house at Disneyland, which has through other effects that have been done since the 50s or 70s or whatever, when they really first opened the haunted house, are animating faces and making them follow you and through normal old techniques. But imagine what a Walt Disney could have done with this. Yeah. Right? There's a there's huge potential to me from the entertainment point of view. But it's troubling from the historic point of view, as is you sent a related article you should Oh, bring. yeah. Well, before we do that, uh, just uh, uh, Carl says in the chat, similar stuff for what they did with Carrie Fisher for Rogue One and Mark Hamill for the last episode of The Mandalorian. Yeah. Not quite the same, but similar. And I get that there's an underlying vibe of technology within that. And then uh, Terry says, hell, I got relatives uh, who were never animated and they're still alive. So good zinger there, Terry. Uh, <laughs> let's go into the... Uh, the related story, and this one, th- this is where things get even more controversial in my mind, um, because Tom Cruise, this is a Petapixel article, Tom Cruise isn't on TikTok, it's a shockingly realistic deep fake. And so, this looks like Tom Cruise. It sounds like him if you could hear his voice. Um, and there's a bunch of TikTok videos that are just deep fakes that purport to be Tom Cruise, and I watched them. I, I mean, I... 
I've never like studied Tom Cruise's face up close, to be completely honest with you. Uh, and I'm not sure if he's aging well, what his wrinkles look like now, etc. I haven't seen whatever his latest stuff is. Um, but I'm sure that they could match all of that. Uh, so if they could completely fake a celebrity appearance. Number one, this is, uh, this is just like fodder for the paparazzi. They could just make any celebrity do anything they want and maybe pass that off as real. I don't know. Um, but it also... But you have to ask yourself when Tom Cruise, and you know he has, right? When Tom Cruise saw this, was he flattered or was he angry? That would be interesting well, to know. The guy who made the Tom Cruise one actually came out and said, this is way harder than people think that it was to make. He got a very well-known Tom Cruise impersonator so that he could get close. Mm -hmm. Even then, again, nose and eyebrows, you can really see it. But it was already a Tom Cruise impersonator, so now it's just blending the look a little bit, you know, com in comparison to somebody who didn't look like him. But I'm curious what the person on the receiving end of this thinks. Because to me, I, I honestly, I started to say what I would think if somebody did it to me. Well, it's your likeness, right? And I don't they're, know. They're violating your likeness in a sense. Uh, and do you? Well, and that's the other question: is that lawsuit capability? I mean, Tom Cruise is a is a public figure. I don't know that he has any recourse for that. But yeah, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of lines here that are that are not in stone. Well, and and again, just like the previous one, this technology is only going to get better, right? So what if what if somebody uh, with nefarious ideas uh, comes up to you? And says, uh, hey, Steve, here's these photos I have in you from a motel room two nights ago. Um, looks like you were having a lot of fun, and that doesn't look like your wife. Uh, what are you going to pay me to bury it's funny, those? I don't remember that hotel room. Exactly. But the thing is, uh, if pe people can blackmail people in positions that whomever they are blackmailing to hide something from, uh, they might believe it. This could be the next big scam for people. And I just... Uh, I don't, I love technology, but the better it gets, the more easily it can be misused for people with, with bad intentions. You know, there are some interesting comments on this. I'm so glad people come and do this in the chat because there are some really interesting takes on this. Gary Monroe said, doesn't matter how good or bad deep fakes are right now. The point is it is inevitable that people will be made and there are no current rules limiting it. And Carl said huge gray areas, and that's the thing. And there's always been gray areas, right? There's been gray areas in everything that we do that's creative to a point. But this one is, this is, you know, Dolly the Sheep type stuff. It's, it's, it's tip of the iceberg for what the possibilities are going to be. And all it needs is more powerful artificial intelligence, more computational muscle behind yeah. it. And yeah. that's exponentially increasing, right? So we can expect that this type of thing will increase. And when it does, where will we be? Um, will, I mean, to, to some degree, it's like, okay, well, uh, if I need to, like, uh, go to a, a public event, uh, maybe I could have a robot that looks and sounds just like me to wave and, and smile and, and cut a ribbon and what have you, if I was a celebrity like Tom Cruise. Um, well, what was the one movie with, uh, oh, now I got to think of it. And it was just that where it was Scarlett Johansson and somebody else, the island, I think it was called. I don't think I saw it, but, um, but, and they were basically, it was celebrity people paid to have clones of themselves that 
were there in case they got in an accident or something, they could harvest body parts from them. Now, this is all virtual, but still. Well, of course. Uh, but, you know, it's it's an interesting concept that if I, if I needed to... Uh, if I could train uh, an artificial intelligence to record this podcast and I could just be, you know, upstairs playing with my daughter, if it had the, the mental insight to say the same things... Um, that's an entirely different story than just faking uh, an, an appearance, right? Yeah, so yeah, I agree. The, the appearance thing is actually far, far easier. Like you mentioned, necessary like body tics or actions, raising an eyebrow, uh, you know, verbal enunciations. That's almost impossible right now to recreate. But again, we're tip of the iceberg. We have no idea how our own uniqueness is going to be infringed upon uh, in the future. And if... If you can have this deep fake stuff, if you can animate a photograph, uh, we're in very interesting times. The, the fact that over yeah. the next decade, um, that this technology is going to take off, we again, we see the exponential growth in all of these things. All it takes is somebody with an idea to program it to really make it a reality, and uh, and we'll be there. Uh, dystopian future is is ahead, so we'll we'll see where we survive yeah. as creative professionals when just about everything around us can be faked um, to the point where if you could imagine something, you know, there's technology out there that can read your brainwaves and sort of start to reconstruct it in some ways as well and, and dreams too. So yeah, um, that's, I, uh, I weep for the future that my daughter is going to inherit because her sense of personality, her sense of self is going to be horribly affected by these because in 10 years, she's going to be a teenager. Uh, and who knows what social peer pressures, what body images, etc., are going to be on the, the mind of, of a young person during that generation. It's just, it's not going to be pleasant, I don't think. No, no. And there's... Somebody made the comment in their Moore's Law applies here. That's really what it comes down to to me is, yeah, this is cool, but man, could this go wrong? Oh, yeah. Man. Uh, I mean, think about the stuff you can make a famous person say now in this world that will completely ruin someone's career. And if it gets good enough that people can't tell, I mean, there's a lot of gray area. Yeah, and, here, and Carl also yeah, says it sounds it like the uh, in altered carbon, where a body is a sleeve, and, and your consciousness, your mind is held on. I think it's like a little disc on the back of your neck. And so long as that's intact, when right. the body dies, then you can go into a new sleeve, uh, per se. Exactly. Uh, I don't think we're quite there yet, Carl. But uh, goodness, science fiction is coming closer and closer every day. Um, and we push limits in other directions as well, which brings us to our next story. And that is uh, from DP Review. The new Phantom TMX high-speed cameras can record at up to, drumroll, uh, uh, 1.75 million frames per second. Now, that's a bit of a, a marketing uh, scheme because, yes, they can, but that's not for photographic purposes. It's like that uh, laser camera on the rover that's detecting emissions uh you know from you know whatever's been vaporized at that rate it's it's a metric system to measure the distance that something is traveling but at usable resolutions um that's where things get a lot more interesting because the previous flagship was the v2512 and uh if you wanted to get 75,000 frames per second it, it could do it but it could only do it at 500 by 500 pixels resolution, which is okay if you're, you know, maybe Mythbusters in the early 2000s. Um, but 
it's really not like it doesn't scale to, to, to full proper HD or 4K or anything like that. Um, but now this new model, uh, they're specifically referencing in the video the TMX 7510. It can do 75,000 frames, per, actually 76,000 frames per second at uh, 1020 by 800, which is much more serviceable uh, in terms of. Actually, it's 76,000 at 1280 by 800. Uh, yeah, I thought I said 1280. Did I not? I thought you said 10, but yeah, either okay. way. Uh, but anyhow, that, that is sufficient for uh, any uh, institu- uh, to put into a, a documentary film or any cinematic use that requires that for whatever the reason. Um, and at that rate of speed, man, that's something that we've, we've never seen before. Now, these are also not your typical cameras. These are basically no. uh, boxes with a handle on them. I just love the industrial designs of these things. They, um, they, and they're not designed to be operated alone. Typically, they're rented with a trained operator. Uh, and they can include up to 512 gigabytes of memory. Uh, your camera having 500, like a half a terabyte of RAM. That's those are the limits that you need to go to uh, to get here. Well, what do you think about this uh, pushing limits in this area? Is it needed? Obviously, not something that you're going to own, but it's not something I'm going to own. But you know, the videos that I've been showing, where you're watching a bullet go into ballistic, ballistic gel, gel yeah. the the or or glass cracking, the ability to understand. You know, imagine watching a building be imploded. But at this type of a frame rate where you can really see how structures fail, that could help you in earthquake preparedness, for example. Mm-hmm. Understanding how glass breaks could help you understand in designing safety glass. These type of things have phenomenal industrial uh, applications. And we're going to go back to the resolution thing we talked about on Mars. This thing does 76,000 frames per second at 1280 by 800, but it will do 300,000 frames per second at 1280 by 192. Yeah. So that's like, again, you need to measure something cutting across the frame and see exactly how it interacts with whatever it likely impacts into if you need that kind of frame rate. Well, and it does color or black and white. In monochrome, it'll do 40,000 to 200,000 ISO. And in color, 12,500 to 63,500 ISO. This is, to me, this is a huge thing from an industrial point of view. I, I also think that- No, I'm not going to own it. You're not going to own it. But but uh, Nat Geo- To have like a hummingbird's or, wings virtually yes, still. And maybe exactly. after two seconds of video, you see them twist up a little bit. Or so. I don't know how fast they move. Yep. But, that's exactly it. That's exactly where I see this is that that world in between. Or, you know, if you Between were to- what we see and what we know, you'll be able- And think about what you'll be able to measure based on slow motion. I, I was just thinking of the, uh, uh, the SpaceX uh, Starship SN10 that exploded on the, on the uh, landing pad after it successfully landed and a few minutes went by because it had some, I think, some uh, uh, methane leaks. Um, but to see something like that exploding in slow motion would be scientifically valuable and really cool. Uh, and so there's a crossover there. Again, I mentioned Mythbusters because they're famous for a lot of their uh, uh, slow motion uh, explosions and, and what have you when they were on the air. And I'd always love to see uh, when they would race over to the high-speed camera to see what it would capture. And to say that that technology has improved, I think now it's more firmly in the realm of science and less in entertainment. 
Because to be honest, there's not many things you need to capture moving that fast. Or if you do, especially in nature, the light required to illuminate it at those frame rates can cause harm to your subject. Uh, you know, your subject could catch fire with that much light uh, attached to it. Well, a couple great comments actually in the chat. Uh, Gary said he'd love to see what the slow-mo guys or the smarter everyday guy shoots with this thing. Oh, they're going to get one. I and, can guarantee you that. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no price. Well, it's one of those things right. where if you have to ask. You'll... I suppose, yeah. <laughs> well, I know I won't be getting it. Right. Uh, and, and neither will I. Again, I don't know if uh, if Phantom sells their cameras outright. I, I think that at least in the past, for specific models, it was a rental-only business. Uh, and I don't know if that was true for everything in their portfolio. Did you see Carl's comment? What's that? No audio? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's the question. Does it overheat like an R5? Oh, no, no. Uh, they're talking about you, uh, Steve. They're not, they're not hearing you for, for some reason. There's no audio from Steve. Oh, Come you know through. what? I had my mic muted. Sorry about that. Yeah. Thank you, Carl. I thought you were talking about the video. Uh, but that would be funny, though. And thank you, Gary, for mentioning that. I'm muting things here as I'm moving around so that it doesn't get picked up on the mic. Um, but... It would be interesting, you know, my question is, does this thing do what an R6 does or an R5 does? Does it overheat at 8K1, you know, 8K60? Oh, well, these things have industrial Sorry, fans I on the back to. of them. And uh, and yeah, there's no audio because these things sound like jet engines themselves. There's no possible way that any audio could be recorded near them. And even if you could at that frame rate, your audio is just going to be some weird inhuman thing. It's not going to be interpreted in any possible way like image data could be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing footage that's shot with these things. I might never get my hands on one. I've been in the room with these devices before in the past on a number of occasions, and it's always a fun thing to see what they're able to capture. And what they typically do is they'll have a, a, a cartridge, a, a magazine that has an SSD in it. And I think this one has uh, SSDs up to uh, eight terabytes uh, that can go into it. And it just does a rolling write. Uh, so you might, depending on your settings, you might get three seconds of footage over whatever size of magazine that is. And it's just, it's constantly rewriting. So you have to say stop right after you got the footage. Cause if you don't say stop fast enough, then your footage is being written over again, just cause it's a constant cycle thing. Well, and that's another argument for the resolution here is that because you're shooting so many frames, if those frames were large storage becomes a nightmare and you don't need it. Right, you're not looking at resolution in the end result. You're looking at the blend of those frames together in a slow motion type thing. So, yeah, just lots here. Yep, lots to talk about. And uh, but there's you know only so much that we can practically uh, you know look at because we'll never own one. But we might own yeah. uh, what is in the next story, our final story for the day, uh, and that is from DP Review. It is Gitzo has created an everlasting uh, legend. Uh, tripod with unlimited warranty. Um, okay, great for Getso. It, it actually looks like a fairly nice tripod. I do have a Getso tripod, uh, amongst others. Um, and, uh, you know, so a, c- a couple of things about this right off the bat. Number one, it's great. It's got a nice backpack uh, camera bag thing that, that comes with it as well. But Getso, a very well-established company or a brand by an even larger company that also owns Manfrotto. A lot of people don't know that they're owned by the same company. Um, there's, there's big dollars there. This is being launched as a crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo. And 
I want to get your opinion on two things, Steve. What do you think about this tripod to begin with? But the fact that we've got um, a very large established corporation using a crowdfunding platform, not as a means to make a product come into existence, but as a marketing and sales tool. Okay, strong thoughts here. First of all, looking at the Indiegogo page right now in front of us. This thing is they their original ask was twenty thousand, which is a ridiculous. That's not what they really wanted. Number. No, that number means nothing. Yeah, it's it's a number you put out there so that you can then say that you're fifteen hundred and forty four percent over goal. They've raised three hundred and eight thousand. Now, a couple of things because you you brought up these points and to me they're very very valid. This is an this is not just an established company. Gitzo is legendary. They are considered one of the top tripod companies that there is. I'm assuming they've got the money to do R&D. They've managed throughout the life of their company to come out with updated, new, better tripods and ball heads. This one, no exception, unlimited warranty, free replacement parts, 70% of the replacement parts which is 170 replacement parts. 70% of them are user replaceable and they will just send you the part. That's all really cool. I don't know why you need to float this on Indiegogo. I don't understand why a company of this caliber can't create this product unless maybe they're using it as a pre-marketing tool. Oh, it's it's absolutely like that. a pre-marketing tool. I can guarantee you. <clears throat> well, but again, I argue that there's, I have some ethical not a ton, but I do have some ethical issues with that. There's a bag that goes with it. It's interesting to me, the bag. Um, the bag also has an unlimited warranty to it, which that's more dangerous to me because people are going to beat the bag to death. <laughs> but they're, they're gitzo pricing here. The backpack is $179. That is not a cheap backpack. It's not crazy. The tripod's $519. That's normal price for a Gitzo tripod, maybe even a little less. $699 for both. Um, I just, again, I understand what they're doing. I no, just, no, Steve, Steve. It I, feels I, I, I gotta disingenuous. Who okay. do we know as a company uses crowdfunding campaigns to market their bags and tripod? Peak Design. Peak Design, who Amazon just ripped off. That, that was a funny video. Did you I, see I that, did not see that one. So maybe we'll save that for another episode. But uh, yeah. I, I bought the Peak Design travel tripod because I really like the design. It's the first time that Peak Design had ever made a tripod before. So it wasn't really their market. They're kind of expanding into a new area. And they were hugely successful with that. And that's a company that built their company on crowdfunding. And you've got the old guard companies. Uh, like uh, Gitzo. Uh, and Canon did this as well with another little clip camera product uh, that I bought just to see what the process was, and I was disappointed with it. Um, but my, my idea here is, if it's a product that you could normally market through other means, then don't kind of play on this crowdfunding campaign idea um, unless you're really stepping out on a limb and doing something really unusual, really obscure, something that is such a niche product that you're not sure you would be able to get the sales for, that's what I would love to see more of on these platforms, not just a pre-sale mechanism like, well, I can go to B&H and hit a pre-order button. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure most big camera stores have that functionality as well, um, but this they're using as, uh, as a way to just get more eyeballs. It does make marketing sense. 
They're going to make more money because of it. Yes, I but, don't think it's ethically right for them to be using these platforms because I think that these platforms should be used for something else. And and let's talk about the tripod itself a little bit. Yeah. We might as well do that. We're giving them the press already. 3.2 pounds. It's got a payload limit of uh, 8 kilos, uh, 17.6 pounds. And let's see. Max height is 65 inches. Minimum height is 16.9 inches, four leg sections. But they say one thing on this page, and this really sums up, to me, part of the problem. 5% of the funds are for inspiring the next generation, which is great. Don't misunderstand me. But you're fundraising now. Yeah. Right? You're using Indiegogo not to raise money for a product, you're using Indiegogo to raise money for a product and then giving some of the money from the product to a social cause. Again, great. Love that you're doing a social cause, but that's disingenuous to what Indiegogo is for. Exactly. And, and heck, you I want mean, to donate money to a cause, donate money to a cause. And then from that perspective, if people buy in and, and they give some of that money away, well, yeah, most charities, you'll get a tax receipt for that and that benefits them as well, right? Um, yes. Now, yeah. uh, what, what's your thought? Steve, on, uh, on clamp or lever-style locks on tripods versus the rotational locks that we see here? So I don't like... Most people I know like the, the levers. Yep. I prefer the rotation. And the reason is I grab three of them, turn them, drop the leg. Push the leg up, turn three of them, I'm done, and I'm gone. I also find that if you're in certain elements, sometimes sand gets in a lever, and it rarely affects the twist kind. But... but I do know people who hate the I kind, well because they can take. Longer. I don't live in Southern California, Steve. So when I'm when I'm wearing gloves on and I can't really feel the tactile response in cold weather of whether or not they're actually locked closed, uh, and then I go to set up the shot and one of them is just kind of slips back into itself and then the whole camera falls over. Yeah. Um, I don't like when that happens, and that's happened. So uh, you get a pretty good indication visually of when those lever uh, style locks are are locked. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I kind of like that uh, that peak design tripod uh, over this one, just from a design aesthetic standpoint, even though they were both on the same uh, the same platform. And I have a Gitzo. I have an old Gitzo Traveler, which, by the way, we should mention, this is technically a, one of their Traveler tripods. So it's designed to go on a backpack. It's small. It folds up really tight. I love my Gitzo Traveler. I absolutely love it. And it is the twist lock kind. But I don't know that I've ever found, I'm not a huge tripod guy uh, shooting what I shoot, but I don't know that I've ever found the perfect tripod. I, I backed uh, Lumapod on uh, on Kickstarter before, and they still haven't brought their product to market, although they're very close. Uh, so they've had some delays there as well. I know uh, our, our good friends at Platypod are working on a, uh, a really uh, creative ball head. The ball head. With a design unlike anything the market has seen before. and so I've used it. Uh, I've had my hands on one as well. And uh, yeah. apparently it's been redesigned since I've I haven't used it. it. I've, I've played with it. Yeah, yeah. that's a better way to work. Uh, and... And so from that perspective, it's innovative, it's new, it's a design. Like if, if a company, um, like Novoflex has a quad-legged tripod, so it's not a tripod, it's a quad pod, I guess. Um, quad pod. And uh, it doesn't really roll off the tongue. But uh, the, the idea of, okay, well, if this had four legs... Well, that's innovative. That's bizarre. People might not buy into it. And so thereby you can use a platform like this in order to uh, mitigate the risk of your R&D uh, you know, development costs. But if it's just your regular tripod, it's a good one, but it's just it's a tripod. Um, I, I, 
from a tripod company, I think that they're just kind of rubbing me the wrong way. Um, so no, I hear you. Yeah. And so there, there's that. That's our that's our final story. Um, but that leaves us time for picks of the week. But before we get to that, where can people find you online, Steve? So the easiest place to find me, I'm on Twitter or Instagram, or of course, all the links are from my website, stevebrazel.com. It's like the country Brazil, but two L's. And the podcast I do behind the shot is at behindtheshot.tv. On Instagram or Twitter, the podcast is behind the shot TV. Me, Steve, at Steve Brazel on Instagram or Twitter. Twitter is still my favorite. I'm on Instagram a lot too, but I kind of live on Twitter. I, I absolutely love Twitter. So uh, that's the easiest place to find me. And then again, you and I do the image critique shows at the beginning of each month. We do one a month. We've done 17 of them now. Just did one today. So if you haven't watched that, head over to my YouTube channel, which is Behind the Shot on YouTube. We had the great Andy Anatko on helping us uh, critique images, and we'll do another one next month. Um, so make sure you check that out too. Perfect. And we find you quite frequently over here at photogeekweekly.com. Uh, and usually I do a better job of engineering things. <laughs> usually, but hey, we're, we're working through it. Uh, you're, yeah. we, we haven't had any major faults since we fixed the ones at the beginning. Uh, yes. But, uh, uh, and you can find me at uh, doncom.ca, D-O-N-K-O-M.ca. Uh, or if you are curious about my new book, which is just about to have ink on paper at the press, um, you can pick up a copy of that at skycrystals.ca. That's uh, piggybacking off of my, my first book's domain name that had the e-commerce set up there. But that uh, that's going to be available hardcover, limited edition. I'm figuring out the uh, uh, where I've got the, the leather swatches here, and I just heard from the, uh, the the press that it is acceptable that I use. Oh, geez, where is it now? Um, this guy. This one was the uh, ebony four one oh one lamin nine five six leather uh, because that, for whatever reason, is. The choice that I made. Uh, See, and I didn't get in in time to get the limited edition, and I'm bummed. I wish I there had. are still a few but. available. You can pre-order them. I uh, I ordered uh, from the press 5,000 copies of the regular edition and 150 copies of the limited. Uh, the limited will never be reprinted, uh, although the regular edition is probably going to go through a second print uh, based on the way that they're selling out. So they're still there. It's uh, just part of that po- uh, process. Um, I, nice. Yeah, uh, I'm happy that that's coming to a conclusion. But uh, this podcast is coming to a conclusion as well right after our picks of the week. So, Steve, what do you got for me? Okay. So my pick of the week, I've actually got two picks of the week. And I had my down camera set up right here to show it. And I was going to pull it up. But my phone has been sitting there through our critique shows and through this. And my phone just died. So I'm going to do it (laughs) a slightly different way. But I've got two quick picks. And the first pick is what I'm actually talking through right now, and it's this. It's a Sound Devices Mix Pre 3. This, okay, so I've been a radio for 40 years, and I've talked on great mics, and I've talked on cheap mics, and I've talked through great equipment, and I've talked through cheap equipment. For the podcast, I've used a number of different interfaces to get these microphones that I use into the recording. And I started with a small, cheap little Shure X2U, which works fantastic. I switched to one that's on the shelf behind me back here. Actually, I started with even a different one, a Scarlett Solo. It was so noisy, I couldn't take it. Went to the Shure. I went to a PreSonus. My PreSonus blew up six months after owning it. Literally blew up. Like smoke and flames? Had to send it back. No, but it melted. They had to replace the motherboard six months in. And I only use it twice a month. It was like ridiculous. So... 
finally, I've heard from all of these people that that the best thing you can get is this particular thing, which is the Sound Devices Mix Pre 3. And I'm like, God, I don't really want to spend that. It's a podcast. I'm not, you know, come on. Well, I bought one. I get it now. I totally get it. This thing is absolutely amazing what it will do. I've got presets in, whether I'm using the mic that's above me, the boom mic, whether I'm using this mic. I've got compressors turned on or limiters turned on. Um, Its recording capability is phenomenal. I am recording on it right now, and I'm even recording Dawn on it right now. It's a phenomenal piece of hardware. It's not cheap. It's $710, but it's fantastic. And the other thing that I was going to show, which unfortunately my, my phone died, is this piece of software. So what I normally do is, and it's going to be difficult to show you right now, but sitting next to me, I have a super clamp with a giant thick gooseneck arm and a phone mount. And I put my phone mount in that with a lightning to HDMI adapter that I run into my ATEM Mini. I can use it as a down camera where it could have, I used it the other night for a show, actually. Uh, it can, I can hit a button and suddenly you can see what's on this board next to me. It's like a cutting board to make it look a little nice in the background. But the problem is it's over here to my left. Well, on my iPad, I run this piece of software and it's Filmic Remote. And what it does is it lets me mount my phone on this mount, not have to touch it. I can zoom in, zoom out, change the lens on my phone, change the white balance, all from my iPad remotely. Very cool. And it works absolutely fantastic for this. So as we are all doing, I think, we're all doing more hybrid video and audio stuff along with our photography, or we are all trying to use our phones for certain things, if you've never used Filmic Pro, which is a, a kind of a pro video app on phones, the ability to use Filmic Pro and get a clean HDMI out of my phone and then remote control it is a godsend for what I'm doing nowadays. All right. Well, I, and you know, and Terry said, "Is this the one you keep forgetting to turn on?" No, it's been on for three hours now. <laughs> Literally with a camera on, which is why it sucked the battery in. Yeah, well, that's one of the big uh, evolutions in technological uh, advancement that we're going to see. I think in the next little while is battery tech uh, is due for some uh, big bumps in performance. But uh, and I've been I've been waiting, and I charged my phone back up when it died, so I'm going to pull it up here really quick. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and uh, you know, I, if if we if we talk tech. You know, oftentimes we're talking, you know, Steve's $700 plus, uh, you know, Premix 3. Uh, and I've made some very expensive recommendations before. But this one is really low tech. And it isn't directly photography related. But um, I've got this. This is the spray bottle to end all spray bottles. Now, why is this important? Well, one of my biggest bodies of work besides snowflakes is water droplets. Uh, and I've done a ton of images with that. And uh, I've always been using just standard spray bottles that are, you know, just the you know squeeze variety, although that's a screen cleaner, so I wouldn't want to do much with that. But um, this, all I have to do is press the trigger to, to kind of wake it up, and then I can cover my computer uh, with water, which is maybe not a great idea right now. Um, but it is an automated spray that just keeps going and going and going. And, well, if I ang oh, I like angle that. it the right way. Yeah, yeah, look at that. I'm getting everything wet. Um, 
but um, but it does have a fairly fine mist, and your trigger finger isn't going to get very sore. And the density, the amount, the volume of water that comes out of this thing is uh, is pretty intense. Uh, now, I don't have it up uh, in front of me right now as my pick because I was going through my show notes. But if I just click on that link here super quickly, I can tell you that it cost me $29.99. Uh, and that, yeah, I have it up on Canadian, screen as so well. It's, it, it's probably less expensive in the U.S. Uh, it holds, I think it holds about a full liter of water, uh, which is quite substantial for what it is. And just as a, a photographic tool with a, a nice fine spray to get those water droplets that you really need. Or, heck, if you've got a greenhouse, you've got some plants in your kitchen, just give them a nice dusting of water once in a while. They'll like that too. And here's my, my down camera that I was talking uh-huh. about. So this is, the phone is right there. And it just gives me the ability to come over here and show something and flip it and do what I want. And, and I've got a remote sitting right over here on my iPad so that I don't have to actually look back. I can see everything I'm doing. I can change the focus from it. I can zoom in or zoom out, change focus. It's Boom. a pretty cool tool. Refocus it. There we go. And there. Steve, you're muted again. And so it's kind of cool. It's it's Steve, you're muted again, oh, according to Gary. I, that was an accident that I hit the mute there. <laughs> and people are commenting that Steve keeps muting the audio. It's been a long day. Um, I hit it by accident. But anyway, so this is, this is the remote where uh, I can do this on camera. I can zoom in and do whatever I want to... We're all good, Steve. That, know, that's, show that's, a, a product. that's a really cool demo, right and I actually want to set one of those up myself now because that is so incredibly useful. And that's that's the um, uh, the Filmic Remote software that's doing that for you, right? Yeah, Filmic Remote and then Filmic Pro. Um, I love it. Jane said everybody's leaving now. I'm so bad with this mute thing. I'm screwing <laughs> up so bad. Anyway, so that's my pick. All right. Thank you for that pick, Steve. And uh, thank you for everybody that was listening, either live or after the fact. If we were talking too much about visual things, well, you'll just have to take a look at the YouTube stream uh, and catch this with any of those visual cues that you might have otherwise missed. Um, But uh, it is March. We are pretty well one year into this pandemic. And uh, that's when I started the, uh, the change to our slogan. And so thank you again for a wonderful episode, everybody. And it is time to stay in and shoot.